Let's open our Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at Jesus' last exhortation in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I must admit that usually when I finish preaching a book or a section of Scripture, I'm excited to move on to the next one. Uh, but twice in my life, I've finished something and thought, man, I'd like to do that again. The first time was Ephesians. I just wanted to preach Ephesians again as soon as we got to the end of it. And I would love for us to uh, go through the Sermon on the Mount again. But we won't. So let's pay attention this morning uh, as we uh, look at uh, the last portion of Jesus' most famous sermon. Hear the word of the Lord. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Father, would you please help us in your grace to hear your word, to flee foolishness, and to walk in wisdom. Lord, we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. While I was doing uh, some of the deepest kind of research uh, this week, I was Googling, uh, looking around for uh, illustrations uh, for what I wanted to bring to you this morning, and I found that there is basically an infinite rabbit hole of human beings doing stupid things on the internet. There's entire channels uh, devoted to this, fail army, uh, you had one job, fail of the week, uh, some guy with a TikTok reel who just rolls his eyes as people do stupid things on construction sites. There's a pretty strong appetite in us to watch other people do dumb stuff. We find this particularly satisfying. And if you were going to take a portion of scripture that would fit right in on one of these channels, it would be the guy building his house on sand. You would be looking at this guy going, you had one job. You had only one responsibility, and that was to build a house somewhere it would actually stay. And I'm not a construction expert. I've worked a few construction jobs, but nobody calls me instead of Anthony Leitner when they have a problem in their home. Not ever, not once, not ever. And if you were ever tempted to do it, stop now. Reconsider your life. But even though I'm not an expert, 
my knowledge level has risen to this height. I know that when choosing a location for your house, you do not choose the sandy beach to place the foundation of your home. I remember years ago, uh, the kings taking us to their home city of Pensacola and driving down the beaches where homes were just wiped out, just gone, because someone had the bright idea that they should choose Hurricane Alley on the sand to build a home. And it didn't go well. It never goes well. And it's interesting, foolishness is obvious to everyone except the fool, isn't it? I mean, we all wanna watch fail army videos. Nobody wants to be in a fail army video because we look at that and we go, how did they miss it? It was so obvious that that was the wrong thing to do. Now, what Jesus is doing in this story where something obviously stupid and self-destructive takes center stage, what Jesus is doing is he's posing a question to you and me. And it's not a trick question like I sometimes ask. It's not a, a clever question. It's just a simple, straightforward question. Do you consider yourself wise or foolish? Are you a sage or a moron? Are you a wise man or woman or a foolish woman or a foolish man? Now, some of you might hear that question and there's some biblical alarm bells that start going off in your mind. He said, am I a wise person? I know the right answer can't be yes. If I say yes, I'm wise, then that must be wrong because somewhere in the Proverbs, it says be not wise in your own eyes. That's Proverbs 3, 7. Or Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. That's an amazing statement from the Proverbs because the Proverbs has a low view of the fool. But in the Proverbs, there's one guy lower than the fool. The guy who thinks he's wise. That man has actually less hope than a fool. So let me reframe my question. Because I doubt anyone's gonna go, I am wise, very wise. Sort of like the guy who's like, I'm very proud of my humility. No one's gonna own being wise. So let me ask you the question a little differently. Not do you consider yourself wise or foolish, but the far more important question, does Jesus consider you wise or foolish? Put your name in there. Make it personal. Does Jesus consider Ryan, you, wise or foolish? You can know the answer. You are meant to know the answer to that question. The whole Bible, 
wants us to be wise as we prepare for this life and as we prepare for life after death. The Apostle Paul describes the Bible as the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The main character in the Bible is Jesus Christ, who 1 Corinthians tells us is the Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we don't want to have an idea like there's something out there called wisdom and folly. It's probably better to be wise, but you can never really know whether you are wise or are foolish. We've got an entire book of the Bible, the book of Proverbs, which would be a great bestseller in 2024, trying to tell young men how to walk in wisdom and then directing them as to what kind of woman they ought to choose to be their wife. Not a fool, but a Proverbs 31 woman. So the Bible's assumption is not only that there is wisdom and folly, but that you can know wisdom and folly and that you can actually know if you are being wise or if you're being foolish. What a blessing in a confusing world to actually have a word revealed to you that you can walk away from and say, I know walking according to this word, I'm walking in wisdom that will last in this life and in The next, Jesus cared about wisdom. Twice in the book of Matthew, he tells us stories about the wise and the foolish, twice. In one sense, you could say all of his teaching is about wisdom and folly, but twice he brings it right to the front, makes it center stage. First, he tells us in Matthew 25, the story of 10 young women going to a wedding, and he tells us five of these young women were unprepared for the wedding, and five were prepared And Jesus says that five were wise and five were foolish. Now listen to that. Something about wisdom for Jesus is about being prepared for the future. Five were wise because they were prepared for what's coming. Five were foolish because they weren't prepared. When we're parenting, when the kids are really little, we're just trying to get our kids to respond appropriately to immediate stimulus. That will burn you. That will hurt you. Stop. When they get a little older, we're hoping they can envision that there will be a tomorrow and a next week. And whether or not you'd started your homework today will affect tomorrow. The process is slow sometimes, but it's real and important. Being prepared for the future is part of gaining wisdom. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, strikingly, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ends the sermon with a story, an illustration, that essentially says how you respond to this sermon is a matter of wisdom or folly. How you respond to this sermon is a matter of eternal wisdom and eternal folly. The the, the, um, story of the two builders, the two houses, the two foundations, the two storms, and the two outcomes was told by Jesus to get you to ask a question in your mind. 
As much as you don't like to be the guy in the fail army video, you have to ask, am I the wise man who built his house on the rock or the foolish man who built his life on the sand? Jesus is not just trying to tell you what he thinks is wise or foolish. He wants you to be able to answer the question before the storms of life come. Am I wise or am I foolish? You want to know the answer to that? Of course you do. Nobody wants to be the kid in the COVID meme. You've seen these? These are my favorite of all the COVID memes. The kids with the masks on with the holes cut out so they could play saxophone. I'm pretty sure that's not working. No matter where your stance is politically, I'm just pretty sure that one's not working. Jesus wants you to avoid not just that sort of giggle at the end of time, but what we will see is actually God's derision towards folly at the end of time. In this passage, Jesus shows us three truths about wisdom that help us pursue it. He shows us three truths about wisdom that spare us from eternal folly. And here they are. First, you need to know that the difference between wisdom and folly is never immediately obvious. The difference between wisdom and folly, especially related to eternal matters, is not immediately obvious. If it was, we'd all be wise, wouldn't we? Second, the difference between wisdom and folly is exposed by storms. It's when everything shakes, the difference between wisdom and folly is exposed. Third, the difference between wisdom and folly is obedience. The wisdom between, the difference between wisdom and folly is obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his word. Let's look at the first sobering fact. The difference between wisdom and folly is not immediately obvious. Notice as you go through these stories, the similarities. In verse 24, when Jesus is describing the wise man, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine. And then in verse 26, when he's describing the fool, he begins, everyone who hears these words of mine. As Christians, we often draw the line between wisdom and folly with those who hear Jesus on the wise side and those who ignore Jesus on the foolish side. That's not where Jesus draws the line. It's true that you can't be wise unless you listen to Jesus, but it's also true that many who listen to Jesus are not wise. The line between wisdom and folly is not the line between those who listen and those who don't. There are many who listen to Jesus. If ever there was a church sermon, this is one. There are many who listen to Jesus who are divorced from wisdom, who do not know anything but folly. 
The second similarity you'll see here is that both of these men in this situation are building houses. Building houses is not the mark of the wise. They both build houses. I think it's quite clear these houses are a way of saying they both build lives. They both confess faith in Jesus Christ. They both listen to the Bible. They both affirm what it teaches as the best way to build a life. Judas and Peter both built lives around the teachings of Jesus. Paul and Demas both built lives listening to the teachings of Jesus. The apostle John, who loved to serve, and Diotrephes, who loved to be first, both built lives listening to the words of Jesus. Building a life where the teachings of Jesus are affirmed, listened to, and in some senses used to shape our lives is not the difference between wisdom and folly. Some fools listen to Jesus and build a life, and some wise men listen to Jesus and build a life. Third, expecting storms is not the mark of the wise man or the fool. Experiencing storms, I'm sorry, is not the mark that separates the wise from the foolish. I think we can take the storm imagery in this story very broadly. Storms can refer to the trials of life, the terrors of death, and ultimately the tribulation of God's final judgment. That's probably most distinctly in view. And all of these storms, the wise and the foolish, will both face. I used to pastor in a little farming community in southern Alberta, and I uh, used to hear uh, of one of the members of the church talking about a farmer whose crop was wiped out by a storm. And they talked about how this guy's crop got wiped out by a storm, and it was probably because he worked on the Sabbath. The logic went, if he'd, obeyed, if he'd been like Chick-fil-A, things would have gone better for him. But the reality is that obedient believers and disobedient non-Christians both get cancer. The reality is that Christians and non-Christians both get in terrible car wrecks. The reality is that both Christians and non-Christians wind up refugees chased from their homelands. The reality is that storms are equal opportunity events. And the fact that your life is so hard is no indication you are a believer. The fact that your life is so easy is no indication that you are a believer. The fact that you learn through trials is no indication you are a believer. Turn on the TV. The most immoral, immodest Hollywood starlet will tell you that the hardest times in their life made them stronger. That's not a distinctly Christian idea. You'll find Muslims and Buddhists and Jews all saying, the hard times made me stronger. Storms are not the mark of a believer. It is not, you can't, you can't logic it out this way. You can't work it out this way. I'm listening to Jesus, therefore I'm wise. Not, does not follow. 
I'm building a life around the words of Jesus. I'm wise, does not follow. As I listen to Jesus' words, life is hard. I must be a believer, does not follow. And I say this to you because I love you. Jesus says this to you because he loves you. Because he wants you to have true faith, saving faith, not deceived faith. He does not want you to be hearers of the word only, says James, so deceiving yourself. There are temptations Christians know that are unknown to the unchristian world. The non-Christian world is not tempted to deceive themselves by their listening to Jesus. But professing Christians are. And because of Jesus' love for you, and his love for your complete salvation. He wants to speak to us about what actually constitutes true and eternal wisdom. The second thing in our, in our, that we want to see in this passage is that storms reveal wisdom and folly. Storms reveal wisdom and folly. It's not the presence of storm that reveals wisdom and folly. It's the, the effect of storms. It's what storms do in a life that reveals whether you're walking in wisdom under Christ or folly away from Christ. Notice that the wise man's storm and the fool's storm are described with the exact same language. Verse 25, talking of the wise man. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Look at the storm that comes to the foolish man. Verse 27, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. We could be tempted to say that those who fall away endure the greatest storms. Not true. The storms are coming with complete equality. Probably the same storm, it's an illustration. So I don't know which storm was which, but the point is the exact same pressures are coming against the fool, and the wise, but having very different effects on their souls, very different effects, very different outcomes on the lives they're building. So notice this, the one falls, the other stands. We see that happening all around us, don't we? Falling and standing when storms come. We see this when the trials of this life often destroy the faith that many appear to be building. In the parable of the soils, we're told about two kinds of professing believers. The parable of the soils compares the human heart, different kinds of soil, and it compares the gospel message to seed planted in those soils. The parable makes it clear that the seed does not thrive in the soil of every human heart. Even some human hearts that looked like the gospel was growing there 
turn out to be unconverted hearts, barren soils. Listen to this. Listen to the storms coming against the gospel seed in the parable of the soils. Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. We baptize these people. We should. They receive the word with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution, read that poetically, storms, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. It's like you built on sand. Jesus continues, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Tribulations, persecutions, cares, lies of money, all of these can choke the word. Kill a building. Or to use the illustration Jesus here, knock down a house. Listen to this. Apostasy, deconstructing your faith, leaving Christianity, after having an initially joyful reception, it's never neutral. It's never because someone discovers some truth that shows the irrationality of Christianity. It's never because someone uncovers some fact that disproves the gospel. It is because of the way the gospel is hindering their own fleshly desires. That's what drives walking away from the faith every time. But trials in this life are not the only thing that can destroy faith. The trial of death can destroy faith. You know, a lot of times we think we get through cancer, we get through leukemia, we get through difficulties, all the trials are done. The Bible describes the last enemy as death. There's a sense in which everyone in this room, if we're given a protracted death, is gearing up for the last test. Do I believe Jesus when everything is about to be taken away from me? And many say no. Many on the last, on the hour of their death, have a flood of undealt with sins on their consciences. And they find that though they seek repentance, they cannot find it. They've so defiled their own conscience. They so hardened their heart. There may be good reasons to give morphine, but they want more of it because they want to be numb ASAP and taken away from the thoughts that arise when death is staring you in the face. But the storm most probably in view in this passage is the final judgment. Notice the connection between our passage and the passage before. We're told here that, that, it's, that there's a sense in which these words of mine, they're coming right after this passage where Jesus has just con condemned some people to depart from him. And so the storms that are coming against the person who doesn't hear the word, doesn't listen to the word, doesn't obey the word, I'm sorry, are most likely the storms of God's final judgment. There will be many, we've already said this last week, 
who will get right to the moment of God's final judgment with assurance of salvation, and they will be wrong. They will show themselves to be fools at that moment. Now, let me just back up for there. We, we, we spoke last week about how oftentimes Christians will lose or they'll have their faith shaken at least when they see various preachers who look so credible fall away from the faith or they saw Christians who look so credible fall away from the faith and that makes, that shakes our faith. And we said, that shouldn't shake your faith because Jesus said that would happen. So far from proving that Jesus' word is not true, those events actually are confirmation of the truth of God's word. But let me go one step further on that. Oftentimes we'll see maybe a preacher live a wicked life behind closed doors, maybe be a hypocrite when push comes to shove, but they continue to get the accolades and the prestige of being a gospel preacher, whatever those are, but they continue to get whatever that's worth throughout this life. And we can say, that's so unjust. How on earth could a guy get all the privileges of leadership all through his life while well, he's a pedophile in the back room? He can lead denominational transformation. He can lead in all kinds of spiritual settings while well, he's a total hypocrite. And then that can rock our faith. Don't let it. No one gets away with anything. Everyone whose life was built on sand will have that life torn down. You may not see the fall, but it will be there. And it will be a great fall. And no one needs to worry about God being unjust because anyone gets away with anything in this life. The whole message of this passage is at the end of the day, everyone who does not build their life on the word will be shaken and destroyed in the storms of God's wrath. But that's not the only outcome of storms. I'll just tell you right now, in case you're getting discouraged, I'm hoping to do better in storms. I'm hoping that God will sustain my faith through all the storms of this life. I got a picture this week of uh, Donnie Isley's dad heading into surgery for cancer, holding his mom's hand, praying with her, heading into surgery, not knowing what he would face, but with faith. Because there's many who face storms and the house, the soul, stands. And that's what I'm persuaded of, of believers that God will sustain them in whatever storms they may face. My son Luke and I went to visit Andy and Sarah Bryant on Saturday morning. And to sit beside Andy, whose body is brutalized, and to see Sarah loving him, serving him. We're all trying to figure out where we can touch and encourage him because he's so hurt. And leaving, my son Luke says to me, he's just so struck by Sarah's loving and living faith. What's going on? She's set on the rock. 
And when your life's built on the rock, when the cancer comes, or the leukemia comes, or the car out of nowhere comes, or the misplaced bullet, or you name it, you can't be shaken. Oh, you can tremble, you can cry, you can weep, but your feet will stay firm on the sure foundation. Isn't that the Apostle Paul's experience? Listen to the Apostle Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? He's basically naming different types of storms. Category four storm, category four distress, category five tribulation. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a man standing in the storms. That's what it sounds like. That's the testimony of a man trusting Christ, obeying Christ, and standing when all hell breaks loose against him. I described earlier the experience many will have at death of losing the faith. There will be many more who say, or there'll be many who've trusted Christ who say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I've had multiple situations in life where I thought I was gonna die uh, some of them maybe I was right, some of them I was probably just worried. But either way, the experience is real when it's happening, right? And what a comfort to think, I am covered in the righteousness of Christ. And Christ's salvation covers all of my sin. And nothing can shake me, not a brain aneurysm this minute, not a tragic accident the next. Christ is my rock. And when the wrath of God finally comes, the believer will be able to take comfort in their Savior's finished work and be thankful for his imperfect work. It's not imperfect in him, it's imperfect in us, of producing obedience in us that's real and true and can stand in the last day. So let's turn to our final point. We're trying to answer the question, does Jesus think I'm a wise man or a fool? We've seen the answer is not immediately obvious. It doesn't, you don't just get to say I'm wise because I showed up to listen to the word on Sunday. Lots of fools do that. It's exposed by storms, both this life or the next. But what is the mark of the wise man in this life? It's that they actually take what they're taught and do it. There could be, maybe, 
Surely you don't need to go to seminary to read this passage rightly, do you? Let's read this together, see if we can figure this one out. In fact, sometimes I think with a passage like this, going to seminary might make it harder for you to see what's right in front of your face. Look at this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Who's the wise man? The one who hears and does. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words and does not do them will be like a man who built his house on the stand. Again, Jesus told us to be doers of the word, or sorry, James told us to be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourself. But this is not some obscure idea in the scriptures. This is over and over and over. Matthew 12, 50, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister. Jesus charged us as his disciples to teach everything he has commanded. Or listen to this one. There was a woman who came up to Jesus before he dies, and she says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus says, now that's a sweet thought. I mean, that would be great on a Hallmark card. That's fantastic. You're right. Blessed is the one who bore me and nursed me. No, he has no, no sympathy for this sentiment. He says, but he said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Closeness to Jesus is not defined physically. Even having Jesus in Mary's own womb does not impart to her any spiritual life. The mark of spiritual life is that Mary and every true Christian goes on to obey Jesus now you might say, wait a second, Ryan. I thought you're just saved by faith in Jesus Christ. You're just saved by knowing him. It's just knowing Jesus. Once you know Jesus, then you're saved. That's actually true. That's 100% right. What does it mean to know Jesus? First John, by this we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments... Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly is the love of God perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Are we, is this passage teaching that we'll be declared righteous before God if we obey him? There should be an unequivocal, even torrential no rising up from your righteous souls. Is this passage teaching that will be declared righteous before God by obeying him? No, that's no, come on. Are we Protestants here? Is there any Protestants here? I need some like, I need some, like Martin Luther. I'm gonna nail the 95 Theses to the wall. Old school Protestants here in this room. Is this passage teaching that you will be justified by faith by your obedience to God? No. no! A thousand times no. But when you're saved by faith alone, even the best reformers always made it clear 
That faith is never alone. When you know that you're fully forgiven, it creates a forgiving life. When you know that you're loved, it creates a loving life. When you know that Christ obeyed the law for you, it creates in you a life that wants to offer your body a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And if it doesn't, you're not saved. No way around it. How you get to that obedience is, matters infinitely. But once you understand what Jesus is teaching, it does matter that you get to a life of actual obedience. So let me ask you this. Are you wise or are you a fool? Anybody can hear a sermon on being forgiving, not being bitter. But when someone sins against you, are you able to draw to mind that Christ forgave you? And is there sufficient motivation there to then forgive others? When you read a passage about modesty in the, in the scriptures, is your number one conclusion, I'll tell you what's for sure, is that all the people who think I should put on more clothes are definitely wrong about this passage. Or is there any willingness to get in there and say, you know what, there's a whole theology in the Bible about nakedness and covering nakedness and the body being sexually intoxicating and not meant to being sexually intoxicating. And so I should actually care how I dress and how I present myself. I shouldn't present myself like so everyone sees what I've got to flaunt, but so there's a modesty about what I've been given. Do you listen to that? Or do you do it? It's way easier to hear a sermon on anger than to shut up when you feel angry. But is that happening? Are you beginning to grow in fighting anger? Is there an ability to put to death what's earthly in you? It's easy to hear, but we should love our wives. Oh yeah, we should love our wives. Hey, we should love our wives. We should love our wives. The only problem with that sentence is the actual your wife part. Her, that one, not the theoretical one. That wife with her struggles, her proclivities to sin, her difficulties, her weaknesses, her strengths. Jesus says if we don't do that, if we don't live with our wives in an understanding way, he doesn't hear our prayers. Go on in a pattern like long enough and you wind up being a lifelong fool who will be laughed out of heaven on the last day. This Christian endeavor is perhaps more serious than any of us really think, isn't it? There's a reason why the Bible uses language like work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a reason why the Bible says warn each other daily. 
This sort of casual, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, we go to church, we make small talk, that's not going to get anyone to heaven. There has to be a watchfulness and a concern for our own souls and for other people's souls. A recognition that other Christians and pastors who might speak into our lives and say, that might be a problem. That seems like a pattern of disobedience. They're not being nosy or intrusive. They're being loving. Parents who don't just let their kids go whichever way, but actually speak lovingly and authoritatively guiding their children. That's not called a power trip. That's called caring enough to see you be wise enough to go all the way to be with Jesus. Are you wise or are you foolish? And if you see that you're foolish, are you wise enough right now to repent of it and to follow the way of wisdom? The way of wisdom listens. You're a sinner. Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. But it doesn't just listen, it obeys. He's a Lord. He is a sovereign Lord with commands that are for our good that will lead us all the way home. And if your Christian life is just coasting and getting a little refresher at church versus a, a cutting and a gouging and a fighting, you may be missing the whole thing. Psalm 23, he, he, he lets us lay down beside the cool waters. That's part of Christianity, just resting just laying down. And then he leads us in paths of righteousness. They're both there. It's the whole package. It's not one or the other. But only when they walk together is anyone on the true path to heaven. Be wise, Emmanuel. Be wise. Know what wisdom is. The world may deride you as fools. No, it's not right. If the world laughs us all the way to our graves, what a comfort to know that on the last day, God the Father will look at all those who trusted him and obeyed him and say, there wasn't anything foolish about that. You've walked in a way of wisdom and Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we just pray you'd make us wise. Give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you. Make us wise unto salvation. Make us wise enough not to deceive ourselves with your word. Make us wise enough to not think our works are enough to save us, but to know that salvation always results in real good works. Help us, Lord, we pray. Lead us in wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.